Lord, we thank you so much for this evening, for this time that we can get together. And I pray that you speak through Dr. Blair tonight, Lord, uh, as we conclude in the book of Joshua, Lord, that we might uh, definitely be able to walk away with some things we didn't have uh, six, eight weeks ago, Lord, and from your word. And we just thank you again for this opportunity to gather and just commit this time to you in Yeshua's name. Amen. Uh, if you would open in your Bible to Joshua 1, we're just going to flip through quickly and review some of the things that we looked at so far. Uh, last week we made it to chapter 19. 13 to 19 was uh, uh, easy to go through. But, uh, first of all, before we even get in the book of Joshua, we spent some time looking at who was Joshua, when are we introduced to him, what was his relationship with Moses. He was mentored by Moses for 40 years and uh, eventually took over uh, the leadership. And uh, then Moses begins to be called Eved Adonai, the servant of the Lord, which he was not called while he was alive. And we find that at the end of the book of Joshua, after Joshua's death, Joshua is also called Eved Adonai after his death. And so they're not given that designation during their lifetime. Um, so in, uh, we talked about intertextuality, the relationship between the book of Joshua and the book of Genesis, a lot of promises of land. If those promises of land were not there in the book of, uh, in the Torah, uh, repeated over and over and again, uh, over again, part of the covenant uh, renewed from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and even Joseph. Uh, and then the purpose of the Exodus is always to bring them out of the land of bondage, to bring them into the land. So without the promise of land, the book of Joshua doesn't make sense. And uh, so uh, that's a big piece of setting up the book of Joshua. Um, so in chapter 1, we saw that uh, Moses laid hands on Joshua and transferred his authority and his anointing to Joshua as the next leader who went for it. For 40 years he had uh, experienced, he had grown uh, into recognizing what was God, what was not God. He made mistakes along the way, but uh, he was mentored well. And there are times that Moses corrected him. And remember when uh, Joshua said, hey, look, they're still prophesying, you know, they shouldn't be held done and made that, you know, uh, that's uh, our job over here. And uh, Moses said, hey, you know, let them prophesy. Would that everybody would prophesy, you know. And Jesus said the same thing in Luke chapter 9. And when the disciples tried to stop people from uh, preaching a, a message and uh, performing miracles. So, uh, so Joshua learned that God is much bigger than him as a leader, much bigger than Moses as a leader. And uh, then we looked at a little bit of the, at the language of warfare. We're going to flip through some of this as we... We review a bit of the chapters. Uh, so chapter 1, what are some important things? Chapter 1, we have three main uh, speeches. We have God addressing Joshua, telling him, 
Hazak ve'emat, be strong and courageous, repeating that several times, and we had read that in Deuteronomy already, and so it's not the first time that it is said to Joshua. And uh, God also promises that he would be with Moses as he was, uh, that he would be with Joshua as he had been with Moses. So talk about an amazing promise and to know uh, that his faithfulness, his power, the authority would be there. And then Joshua, starting at verse 10, addresses the officials of the eastern tribes, and he said, uh, well, the officials of all the tribes, but then he speaks in verse 12 to the eastern tribes and said, do you remember in the the wilderness when God said you are going, all the men of the eastern tribes, you're going to go into Canaan, with the western tribes and you're going to stay there with them until the job is done. And so that is, that is what uh, happens. And then at the end we have a response also from the people of the eastern tribes who say, yes, we're going, we'll, all that you have commanded us, we will do wherever you send us, we will go. And they did. Uh, they, they followed the leadership uh, while their wives, children, animals stayed of uh, Reuben, Gad, and half-tribe of Manasseh stayed on the eastern side of the Jordan. The men who were of age, of military age, uh, went into Canaan with the nine and a half other tribes. In chapter two, we have Rahab. Uh, next week, my students in the Joshua course at Denver Seminary are asked to Uh, I I went on a lot of websites and prepared a list of former prostitutes who have become believers. And uh, I asked them, I gave them a a series of about 13 questions uh, to compare Rahab with at least two of these former prostitutes. And mostly women, but there are some men also. And so, first of all, what's their name? Where are they from? How did they get into it? Uh, Did they say a long time? Uh, what triggered their exit? Was it a, a quick exit? Was it a slow exit? Was, what's their emotional journey while they're going through this? And we don't think a lot about the emotional state of, of Rahab, but as a prostitute, she had to have felt some of the same things that someone who sells her body today would, uh, would feel. It's not, you know, it's not a natural thing. That's not what God has meant for uh, our bodies uh, to be used for. So having the students think about, uh, yeah, you know, what's a prostitute? What did, she was a real person, you know, what did she go through? And then how did the Holy Spirit work in each one of their lives? You know, the modern ones and the uh, and Rahab in chapter 2. For them to come to a point where they acknowledge the living God, the God of, uh, of uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of heaven and earth, as Rahab says. And uh, so, and then I'm going to have, when we get back together, because they do that online, when we get back together, I'll have a guest in my class who is a graduate from Denver Seminary from a couple of years ago, and she is now working with a ministry that works with uh, prostitutes and former prostitutes. And uh, so she's going to come and talk to the class also. So we can rehumanize Rahab instead of just thinking of this literary figure uh, who didn't feel anything, who didn't, you know, struggle. And no doubt life was no piece of cake. And, uh, but when she acknowledged the Lord, you know, uh, 
she found her deliverance and such dramatic stories I was reading about as I was putting this list together. Chapters 3 and 4, we have the crossing uh, from the eastern uh, Jordan to into Canaan. And we talked about the, the, the meshing of almost two stories there uh, with details of picking up stones, first thing you do, build an altar when you get on the other side, etc. And chapter 5, we mentioned quickly that the, uh, in order to, as, to make sure that their relationship with uh, Adonai was, was um, established once they cross the Jordan, first thing they do is circumcise the men who have not been circumcised. Number two, celebrate the Passover. And then we have a theophany who says, I am the messenger or the commander of the Lord's army. So one thing, uh, last week I think we mentioned that, that the book of Joshua is really not about Joshua, it's about God. And every, it always brings us back to God. God does his thing. It's about God, what God wants. God promises, God fulfills, God provides, God distributes. God, uh, it's much more about uh, about what God does in this book rather than what Israel does. In chapter 6, there's the conquest of Jericho, uh, which is where we're introduced to this term cherem in the book. We find the term cherem before. We have it in Deuteronomy, where the term cherem means that whatever the spoil of war is dedicated to God. And God decides what is going to be done with the spoil of war, with whatever they take from that city or leave there from that city. God determines if it's going to be destroyed, if it's going to be taken, uh, to be used, if it's going to be placed in the treasury of the Lord. Or, and in Deuteronomy, we read that whoever takes of the harem, and uh, a harem that is banned, that God says do not take, uh, becomes harem and ends up being put to death. And we find that uh, with Achan in chapter uh, eight. So in chapter six, we're familiar with the basically with the story of the the, uh, the walls of Jericho falling and the procession and all this. And at the end of this first conquest of this first city, we have the typical hyperbolic or exaggerated language of military warfare report. And so in chapter six, starting verse twenty-two, we begin to have these. Uh, then Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, go into the harlot's house and bring the woman and all who belong to her, as you swore to her. So the young spies went in and brought out Rahab, her father, her mother, her relatives, and all who belonged to her, and all her relatives, and all this and all that. So we begin to have a lot of uh, all entire everything. And so whenever something is conquered that God has led, uh, it tells us all, but was it really all? And so uh, the language of campaign report is one thing. Reality on the ground doesn't always match the language. And that's a big piece of understanding the book of Joshua. That it's not a book about genocide. It's not a book about killing everybody. It's actually, as we saw last week in uh, Exodus and Deuteronomy, that many times when God says, I will drive out, I will drive out, I will dispossess, I will, much more often 
then I will harem them, that is often translated destroy, annihilate, that kind of thing. So even in, in Deuteronomy where it tells us that God says, I will drive them out slowly. And so we get a different picture than this major, quick, kill them all conquest. So when we understand that uh, uh, rhetoric, you know, uh, language, key terms, uh, fit specific types of, of uh, text. Now, when you have military texts, they sound different than Song of Songs, you know. Why? They're totally different genres. They're different from poetry. They're different from law. And in Hebrew, you have the verbal system in law. It's very different from the ver verbal system in narratives. You know, you have certain forms in, in narrative storytelling that use this form of verb repeated over and over. And, and it flows because the genre is narrative, is storytelling. Then when you get in Exodus 20 to 24, you're dealing with law. If a man does this, then this will happen. So totally different structure, different verbal forms that, that appear there. So when we read, we have to ask ourselves, how, what am I reading? What genre of text, what type of text am I reading? Reading narrative is different from reading uh, legal text or reading military warfare campaign reports. And so what do I expect in a certain type of text? Okay, I expect this type of language. I switch to a different genre, I expect this type of language. I switch to another genre, I expect this kind of language. These types of verbs and these types of expressions. So Joshua, a lot of military talk uh, and report there. Um, going back to the annihilation, mm -hmm. so it's a military report in Joshua, and we also from the context we gather because then they come back to say oh, some people are still there, so obviously it was never ready. But when we talk about Genesis um, and we talk about if he's going to, you know, he's going to destroy everything on the earth except for Noah and his family. Um, do we take that literally? Oh, that's an interesting yeah. <laughs> uh, Well, was there a flood? I believe there was. Yes, I, yeah. I, I do. But, yeah. that but it's not harem. Because harem is military okay. terminology. Absolutely not present in uh, the flood narrative. So that's what I wanted to know. Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, no. So again, you're dealing, and then it's interesting because in Genesis, you have Genesis 1, you have the creation narrative certain type of language. If you look at the creation story of Mesopotamia called the Enuma Elish, you have very similar language. You get to the flood, you have Atrahasis, which is uh, the Mesopotamian story. So you end up with the same type of language. Even the law in Exodus, chapters 21 after the 10 words, you have the law is expounded and if you read the language, uh, you read the, the, the um, uh, what's, what am I looking for? You, um, formulas, formulas. If a man does this, blah, 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 then he will surely die. Well, what do you have in the code of Hammurabi? Shuma awiluma wilam, dat, 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 idak. He will surely be put to death. So shuma awiluma wilam means exactly the same. If a man does blah blah to a man, then uh, so 
there have been a lot of comparisons made between, of course, Mesopotamian literature, Babylonian, uh, uh, Assyrian, and Hittite, for because the Hittite laws are very similar also, although they're not written in Akkadian, they're written in Hittite, which is not a Semitic language, unlike uh, Babylonian is a Semitic language that is connected to Hebrew. And uh, so you have this whole body of literature in the ancient Near East, and you find that you have, you know, some places almost word for word. In Proverbs, you have the Proverbs of Achikar, in, written in Aramaic, have been translated in several languages. And uh, if you put the Proverbs of Achikar in Aramaic, which uh, are, of course, later than, uh, than the flood stories and the, the legal material, but some of them are word for word what's in the book of Proverbs. And so you think, okay, who plagiarized, you know? That's a serious offense on our campus if you plagiarize. <laughs> but the thing is, is it plagiarism or is it because you had scribes who were familiar with the literature and who, you know, you have poets in every society. You have, uh, you know, uh, people who write stories, who write uh, narratives, who write history in every society. So were the people who wrote uh, the laws in Exodus familiar with the Code of Hammurabi and other law codes? For it, and that, that comes earlier. You know, so you think, okay, it's not just this idea of a funnel from heaven and anything that's in the Bible just kind of whoop, fell in the head of somebody and then they wrote it down. Uh, no, they were... They were scholars, they were uh, scribes, they were schooled, uh, those who, who were able to write biblical text. They were aware of the literature, and the ancient Near is not that big, you know. Plus, Israel is right on the way between Mesopotamia and Egypt. So a lot of people stopped there. And, uh, you have similar issues with... Uh the parables that Yeshua gives and rabbinic parallel, uh, parables, yeah. an awful lot of similarity, yeah. same culture. Yeah, that's right. And Yeshua must have been very familiar with some of the parables that we don't we find in rabbinic literature, but we don't find in the New Testament. You know, so uh, you know he lived in that world, and, and so it's not just what happened in Canaan, what happened in the desert, what happened. It's really, it's a world, a larger world with people who, who came and brought some knowledge and, and uh, uh, the majority were illiterate, uh, you know, before entry into Canaan, but uh, that changed faster once they became sedentary. Oh, very interesting. They moved her whole family to a safe place near the camp of Israel. So their family became part of Israel. Yeah. And she came into genealogy. Yeah, that's right. And another thing about Kabbalistic language, I heard tons of people telling me, I, I love Bible, and they read from the, the Genesis to Revelation, but they never read the Leviticus because it's like legal language. So people cannot... You know, understand that and stand it, and it's like something like foreign. In there. Yeah, because Leviticus is, you know, a lot of. It's not as fun to read as the Joseph story, you know, or 
or juicy Rahab prostitute stories. <laughs> and, but then when you think about when they entered the land, how were they to behave? Leviticus has a huge part of the plan. It was about the holiness of God because the call on the seed of Abraham was to be a blessing to all the nations of the world, to be a light to all the nations of the world. You can't do that without holiness. You can't do that without applying uh, Leviticus and, uh, and celebrating the feast and all of these things. That uh, Yeah. Okay, so we have uh, Joshua 7. So in the conquest of Jericho is really where we're first introduced in Joshua to the Haran, the idea of military language that says this is God's spoil of war. He decides what is done with that. And sometimes it's destroyed. And we also mentioned that the harem is not just a biblical concept. We have that in the Moabite stone, in the Mesha stone. Uh, the harem is mentioned exactly the same way because all of war was theological in the ancient Near East, not just in Israel. I mean, the, the uh, Mesopotamians and the Syrians, I mean, they brought their gods along. And uh, Israel went to war with, you know, with the ark. Why? Because of the presence of God. We don't think of war that way, so it's hard for us to understand that they would report it a different way or, or see it in a theological way uh, rather than militarily. All right, so chapter 7, we mentioned that at the beginning of the chapter, uh, there's no inquiry about, okay, where do we go next, Lord? And Joshua says, okay, let's go to I. Yay, we got uh, Jericho. We, we can do it, you know. And so he sends uh, uh, spies to I, and, uh, which is making its way up the, the Judean hill, and they are defeated. So Joshua's response is, tear his clothes, fall on his face. Oh, God, you know. And God says to him, get up. And uh, why are you on your face? You know, there's sin in the camp. Sin needs to, to be dealt with. And so he tells them what to do until there's a revelation that Achan is, uh, has become harem, has become banned substance. And therefore, the consequence is that he's, um, he's put to death. Now, there's a word play with Achan and Achor, uh, the name of Achan, and it says that the, the last verse of uh, chapter 7, it says, there, therefore the name of that place has been called the Valley of Achor to this day. And Achor, Achor means trouble. And so the Valley of Trouble. And in, in the Chronicles, in the book of Chronicles, uh, the same account talks, or it, it refers to this account, doesn't go into all the details of this account, but it refers to this account, and Achan is not called Achan, he's called Achor. And so he's called trouble. And, uh, and so is it a name change, or, you know, uh, it's definitely he, the valley of Achor, where Achor uh, brought trouble to Israel, and therefore sin was dealt with. Unfortunately, uh, he and his family were were killed, and uh, and then chapter eight. Then now that sin is out of the camp, God says, "Okay, now you can go up to I." And so there's an ambush, and it's divine strategy. And here again, here's the second town that is taken. And at the end of chapter eight, starting at verse 24, 
we have the typical hyperbolic language of military warfare report. It says, after Israel had finished killing all the inhabitants of Ai in the field in the wilderness where they pursued them, and all of them were fallen by the edge of the sword until they were consumed, all Israel returned to Ai and struck it with the edge of the sword. All who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000. All the people of Ai. And for Joshua did not draw back his hand with which he stretched out the javelin until he had utterly destroyed all the inhabitants of Ai. Only the cattle and the spoil of that city Israel took it as their plunder, according to the word of Adonai, which he had commanded Joshua. So in Jericho, they take nothing. They're told, don't touch anything. Here at Ai, when they do it God's way, they're told, okay, you can take the stuff. So the report of this conquest, the conquest of this city, again, uses this all, every, entirely, you know, the same paragraph almost as, as what you have right after Jericho. And so then we keep going uphill, they're reaching the top of the Jane Hill. Uh, the Gibeonites uh, know that they're probably going to get the same treatment as what Jericho got, as what I got. And uh, so we got to figure something out. And so they end up uh, cutting a covenant with Joshua to be protected by Israel, lying to Joshua, saying we come from a far country. And based on Deuteronomy, if you deal with a city from a far country outside of the land, they, they could make an oath or a covenant and work and protect that city. So that's what happens here, but they are... Uh, found out, and, but it's too late because the covenant is cut. Now in chapter 10, so what happens, the king of Jerusalem uh, sees this happening, the city of Gibeon that is located in a very strategic place uh, on the road that goes uh, east to west and north to south. Here's a major city, Gibeon, north of Jerusalem. And uh, actually, it's probably better here. Uh, is it even there? No, it's not. Gideon? Yeah, there's a piece missing of the nun, I mean of the end. <laughs> it says Gibeor, but it's Gideon. Yeah, so, so as you can see, it's right in the middle on the top of the, the hill country, uh, you know, very central to east-west from Jericho to the Mediterranean and from north to south. So a key city. And so in chapter 10, we have the uh, king of Jerusalem, and we mentioned that when you talk about a king, you're really talking about just the head honcho of the town, and uh, because it's not a big king the way we think uh, of it today, and uh, because these were kings of towns, so the mayor of the town or something like that. So the, the king of Jerusalem, uh, gathers uh, the other kings of the south of Jerusalem from Hebron, Yarmouth, Lachish, Devir, and Eglon. Uh, not Devir, but Lachish and Eglon, Yarmouth, Hebron. Yeah, so those five kings, and uh, to try to stop uh, the Israelites from conquering uh, more territory. But uh, this is the chapter where God really is actively involved in throwing stones and, I mean, hailstone from heaven and more were killed from the hailstone that came from God. So you can almost see uh, God as the, the, the 
commander of the army and really very involved in that chapter. It's very interesting. And then uh, Joshua uh, speaks to the sun and moon and they stand still for a time. So various theories on that. Uh, I think it can easily be taken literally. Uh, you know, leave it to God to create the world, the heaven, the heaven and earth. You can sure say to the moon and the sun, <laughs> don't budge. <laughs> Stay there for a minute. And uh, this is recorded also, it says, in the book of Yashar, which we don't have, although the book of Yashar is mentioned elsewhere in scripture also. And uh, so what happened, there's a whole uh, battle, they go down. If you look at your map, you can actually see the king of Jerusalem. You go south of Jerusalem, you have Hebron. You go west, you have Lachish. And the other two towns are not there. So Eglon and uh, Yarmouth. So it would be on some other maps, but they're not here. But they're... they're you know, in the what they call the Shephelah, the lowlands uh, in the western side of Judah. And uh, so they get together, there's a battle, and then they, the kings end up hiding in the cave, which ends up being, uh, you know, not a very good thing for them to do because everybody knows where they are. And so uh, then Joshua has them killed and, and all this. So... Again, in this chapter, we have a lot of formulas that uh, appear as part of language of warfare. If you look at verse 15, chapter 10, it says, um, Then Joshua and all Israel with him returned to the camp at Gilgal. That's after the southern campaign is over. Well, a uh, portion of it anyways. Then you go to verse 31. Says, then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Libna to Lachish. Then verse 34. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed out from Lachish, passed on from Lachish to Eglon. Then verse 36. Then Joshua and all Israel with him went up from Eglon to Hebron. Verse 38. Then Joshua and all Israel with him turned back to Devere and fought against it. So you have a lot of repetition. And when you have a certain genre of literature or report or, you know, you organize it in such a way and you present it by using formulaic language. And then in verse uh, 40, there we have our report. So Joshua conquered the entire country, the hill country, the Negev, the lowland, the slopes, with all their kings. He left no survivors, but he put everything that breathed under the ban which is the Cherem, just as Adonai, God of Israel, had commanded. Thus Joshua defeated them from Kadesh Barnea to Gaza, all the country of Goshen, as far as Gideon. Thus Joshua captured all those kings and their lands as at a single stroke, because Adonai, God of Israel, fought for Israel. And Joshua and all Israel with him returned to the camp at Gilgal. So we finish even with this formula. Uh, at the end. So again, we have this paragraph of all, every, all, every. And so then the kings of the north say, uh-oh, you know, they conquered the south. What are we going to do now? Nobody can stop them. So it's interesting that we started with one town, Jericho. Then it was I and Bethel. Bethel ended up joining with I. 
And then you have the kings of the south. You have five kings, Jerusalem, Yarmouth, uh, Eglon, Hebron. And then the kings of the north, if you look at the beginning of uh, chapter 11, it says, Now when Jabin, king of Hazor, heard about it, he sent word to Joad, king of Madon, to the king of Shimron, to the king of Achsah, and to the kings of the north in the hill country, in the Arava, south of Kinero, in the lowland and in the regions of Dor to the west, the Canaanites in the east and west, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites in the hill country, and the Hivites at the foot of Hermon in the land of Mizpah. So they came out, they and all their armies with them, a multitude with as many people as the sand on the seashore. That's not exaggerated at all. Uh, with very many horses and chariots, all these kings joined forces, came and camped together at the waters of Merom to fight with Israel. And it's interesting because you go to the waters of Merom today, and it's really not that big of an area. You know, you think of uh, multitudes as much as the sand of the sea. And, uh, but you go hang out and, uh, in that area, and you think there's only so many people uh, that would fit there. And so, so here, so we start with one town, two towns, five towns, and now we've got the whole, uh, the whole rest of the country joined in to try to stop. Really, they're trying to stop God and the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're trying to stop Adonai much more than they're trying to stop the people, because it's always if if I win the battle, it's my God who wins. If you win the battle, it's your God who wins. And so to have your God being defeated was a very serious thing because then all of a sudden your God doesn't have the power and to fight for you and to give you victory. So now everybody comes and so there's the fight in the north. And so starting at verse 10 in Joshua 11, at that time Joshua turned back and captured Hatzor and struck its king with the sword because Hatzor had formed had formerly been the head of all those kingdoms. They struck down every single soul in it with the edge of the sword, putting them to the band, Heron. There was none left that breathed after he burned Hatsor with fire. And there is a burnt layer at Hatsor. If you go there today, you can see in the archaeology the site that was the portion of the site that was excavated. Most of the time you don't excavate a whole site. You excavate just a portion of the site. And, uh, and then you normally get what, what you, you need in just a section, plus it's very expensive to have uh, archaeological digs, and to, it would take a lot of seasons to ex- excavate entire towns. Is it Hatzor here? I'm sorry? Is it Hatzor? Hatzor. Yeah, at Hatzor there's a burnt layer. I believe Megiddo also is a burnt layer. There are a few places where the three towns at least that are mentioned as being burned, where the, the archaeologists have uh, identified. You can see it actually because it's black line mm-hmm. because they build on top of it. You know, so if you excavate, you remove what you know. You find things, and so you keep. You're supposed to excavate horizontally, so you excavate a foot, uh, uh, an inch or two. You know, the whole room, and you're supposed to go down, and then whatever you identify, some pieces may start showing. I had the opportunity to uh, do a little bit of archaeology at Petshan, south of uh, the Sea of of Galilee. And up on the tell, where there's one tree, and you know, this wild tree. Yeah, it's the tree that they used in the movie, Jesus Christ Superstar, where uh, 
where, uh, what's his name, hanged hang himself. And uh, so they used that tree on the top of that tell, still there today. And, uh, but anyways, we saw something in the middle. And I was working with some guys from Australia, uh, from New Zealand, the funniest people I had ever met. And so, of course, we were ob very obedient. Uh, we found something. You know, your reaction is you want to dig it out, you know, and bring, but that's not what you're supposed to do because they come and take photos and they actually draw what they found, where, and all this. And so we kept uh, bringing the floor lower and lower. And then one of the guys took a pick, looked around. <laughs> yeah, he wanted to dig, and then we heard crack. And so the entire pot was there. But we broke it, this guy broke it, and of course the, the, the archaeologist wasn't very happy. Because you're not supposed to break it. And, uh, but the next day we went to the pottery uh, washing, because then you put everything in buckets, and then you bring the bucket to uh, the place where you do the washing that day or the next day. And uh, then if things are broken, you have a, a specialist who does reconstruction. And so uh, the next day we went to the washing place and they had already put the pot together. And the lady said, oh, here, this was found uh, yesterday in square number, whatever. That was our square, but there were pieces missing. Mm -hmm. We said, well, where's the rest of it? The whole thing was there. We know we broke the whole thing, you know? And so anyways, they started looking to see if they could find the other pots. But uh, so these are the types of things that they find if it's really been burned, you can tell because there's a black uh, line when you get to that level and then you can keep going. If it's been burnt more than once, then you're going to have a second burnt layer uh, at some point. So uh, different, uh, uh, the evidence is there. So here we have a katsor, um, verse uh, 12. Thus Joshua, in chapter 11, verse 12, thus Joshua captured all the cities of those kings and all their kings, and he struck them with the sword, putting them to the band, Haran, just as Moses, the servant of Adonai, had commanded. But as for the cities that stood on their mounds, Israel did not burn any of them, except Hatzor alone, which Joshua did burn. All the spoil of these cities and the cattle B'nai Israel took as their plunder, but they struck down every person with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them, not sparing anyone who breathed. Just as Adonai had commanded Moses his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that Adonai had commanded Moses. So Joshua captured all this land, the hill country, the Negev, all the land of Goshen, the lowlands, the Arabah, the Hill country of Israel, its lowland from the Mount Mount Halak that ascends to Seir all the way to Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon at the foot of Mount Hermon. He captured all their kings, struck them down, and put them to death. For a long time, Joshua made war with all those kings. What does that mean for a long time? We know already that they were in the wilderness for 40 years. Caleb was 40 when he was sent to spy in the land. When he made a request for his uh, his own territory, he says he was 85. So it sounds like they've been in the land for five years by the time he got his part of the inheritance in Judah. And here it tells us that this took place over 
an extended period of time, you know. And so when we think, we, the word conquest sometimes gives us the idea that you, know, you just go in there and you smash it all and, and, uh, and it seems to reflect language that we have in Deuteronomy, go in there and kill them all, you know, and, uh, or destroy all their ashra, that it happens quickly. Here it's clear, and it was mentioned before, that it took quite a, a, an extended period of time. Uh, we don't know exactly how long. And then there's more all, every, entire, uh, till the end of that chapter. So the report is very clear. Uh, typical language of military report. We had it right after Jericho. We had it right after I. We had it right after the Southern uh, Campaign. And now we have the major report at the end of the Northern Campaign, which really is a summary of the entire thing. But as we mentioned before, we find several places, if we keep going, chapter 12 is really a list of what kings were conquered, what towns. 13 uh, tells us that uh, Joshua was old, there was still a lot of uh, land that needed to be possessed or dispossessed. And uh, in verse uh, 13, it says, uh, Bnei Israel did not drive out the Gesherites or the Machathites, but Gesher and Machath lived among the, uh, Israel to this day. Now here, then, we have this verse, only to the tribe of Levi he gave no inheritance. And we see this repeated three or four times, uh, kind of sprinkled uh, in the chapters uh, 13 to 19, which we have as the chapters, the distribution to the nine and a half tribes on the, uh, in Canaan. You have at least four times mentioned, but to the Levites, you know, uh, no land or no territory uh, was given. So then we, we talked about 13 to 19, the, the structure being distribution, nice little narrative story. Distribution, here we had Caleb. Distribution, here we had the nice little story of Zelophehad's daughters who claimed their inheritance. Distribution, then we have the Manassites who say, hey, what about us? We want more, you know? And then we have, uh, uh, if we go to chapter 17, um, yeah, 18, chapter 18, verse 1. Then the whole congregation of Bene Israel assembled at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there, after the land was now subdued before them. Yet there remained among Bene Israel seven tribes that still had not received their portion. So Joshua said to Bene Israel, How long will you be slack about going in to possess the land which Adonai, the God of your fathers, has given you? Appoint for yourselves three men from each tribe, and I will send them, and they will arise. So, and so we have, up to this point, five tribes who have their inheritance, and but the rest of them don't have their inheritance. So. Uh, you know, Joshua you know, is getting old, and uh, you know, so he's got to finish the job. You know, says, "Hey, what's what's with the the hanging out here, but not finishing the job?" Which is never like us, you know, to start something and not finish. Um, <laughs> so, anyways, and so then from here on, we end up having. Here in this chapter, starting at verse 11, we have the distribution of land to Benjamin. 
Then in chapter 19, we have the uh, Simeon, Zebulon, Issachar, Asher, Naphtali, and Dan that eventually ended up moving north because of the problems with the Philistines. So then we have, the next chapter, we have cities of refuge. And it's so nice to know that God provides, uh, you know, provides in every way. Even if you make mistakes, God provides, God redeems. And cities of refuge are a place where people could go take refuge if they had committed murder, but not uh, manslaughter, I should say, not murder, not intentional murder. Uh, so let's look at Exodus chapter 21, then we'll go to Numbers chapter 35, because of course this is the fulfillment of what is mentioned uh, in the Torah. In Exodus chapter 21, which is immediately after the ten words are given in chapter 20, so you have a number of laws, you know, those if this happened and, uh, you know, these other consequences. So in verse 12, it says, whoever strikes a man so that he dies must surely be pushed to death. So this is intentional killing. This is murder. And it uses the term that you have in the Ten Commandments, ratzach, rotzeach, the murderer. And... Uh, uh, but if he did not hunt him down, yet God caused it to happen, then I will appoint for you a place where he may run. If a man presumes to kill his neighbor with craftiness, you are to take him from my altar and put him to death. So the, in the law, uh, God distinguishes between intentional or premeditated murder and manslaughter and unintentional. And it uses two different terms. Let's look at... Uh, uh, Numbers 35, where we also have information about the cities of refuge, starting at verse uh, 6. Well, no, 9. Okay, 9 says, Adonai spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Bene Israel, saying, When you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, you are to select cities which will be cities of refuge, to which one might flee if he has killed someone by accident. And the term in Hebrew is bishgaga, by mistake. You know, can you kill someone by mistake? Yeah, sure. You know, you somehow you're playing golf, you know, it's having a great time. You play golf and you swing and, you know, all of a sudden your stick go, well, it's not a stick, what do they call A club? And it, whoops, you, you lose control and it hits your neighbor and kills him. Well, that's not premeditated murder. That's bishgaga, uh, by mistake, you know. So, which is different from uh, if someone premeditates murder. So here we have, uh, you are, verse 11, you are to select cities which will be cities of refuge to which one might flee if he has killed someone by accident. They are to be cities for refuge from the avenger, so the manslayer may not die before standing trial before the assembly. So there is a, a system of justice and for the mans, uh, manslayer. The six cities you designate are to be your cities of refuge. Designate three cities on this, this side of the Jordan and three in the land of Canaan as cities of refuge. And it makes a lot of sense if you have the Jordan here, you have tribes on the east, you have tribes on the west. 
there's a city in the north, middle, south. North, middle, south. It kind of wouldn't be very fair if you had all three cities of refuge, you know, kind of clustered here. They run. If you committed murder, you know, here by accident. Uh, so it was a fair system that God established so that people all had a central place that they could go to and find refuge. In verse 15, it says, These six cities of refuge are to be for B'nai Israel, as, for, as well as for the outsiders and the visitor in their midst for, a kill, for anyone killing a person by accident. So God makes provision for the gayer, God for the foreigner. And so God provides. And so there were always foreigners in the midst of Israel. It wasn't just Israelis, or Israelites, I should say, not Israelis, Israelites, uh, in the land of Canaan. It was a mixed multitude came with them, others joined them, and uh, so the system was uh, set up in such a way that even the non-Israelites could celebrate Passover and could uh, participate in some of the feasts and offer sacrifices and, and, uh, and find refuge if they needed to if something happened to them by accident. Verse 16, Now if a manslayer strikes someone with an iron object, that would be a, a golf club, so that he dies. <laughs> he is a murderer, and the murderer must die. If anyone has a stone in his hand that could be deadly and strikes anyone with it so that he dies, he is a murderer, and the murderer must die. Or if someone has a wooden object that could kill and strike anyone so that he dies, he is a murderer, and the murderer must be put to death. The blood avenger himself may put the murderer to death when he finds him, he is to kill him. So this is the system of, uh, they call uh, lex talionis, uh, uh, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And so the avenger of blood, you took blood from my family, so someone from the family would uh, go after your blood. So there's life in the blood, you took life from my family, I take uh, your life, so vengeance. Um, that portion you just read, I found it rather interesting because another portion, it's sort of, mentions motive, like if you happen to hit someone and you didn't hate them previously and so forth, then it's not murder. But if you hated someone previously and didn't intend to hit them, it's murder. But what's interesting here is that basically saying if you have a, um, anything that could be deadly and happen to hit someone, then it's not Not happen to hit someone. So it's a You hit someone to kill them. <laughs> so it's clear whether you kill them with a stone, with a baseball bat, with a golf club, uh, you know, it, this is besina, with hatred, which is different uh, from bishgaga by mistake. But where, where did they say, I'm thinking of this in terms of, you have so many things now about someone was accidentally cleaning their gun or they had a gun and they didn't mean to shoot but they shot and people died and I'm wondering, how does this apply in a situation like that when a person would say, yes, I had a gun and it was loaded, but I wasn't planning to kill. I mean, yeah. how is that reviewed? And well, you say it would still be motive. Yeah, the thing is, it's not an accident. Unless it is a real accident and, you know, you fall and you have a gun and you have a permit to, you know, uh, not cash and carry, but what's the... Well, you may shoot your foot, but what if you shoot, you shoot somebody else in the head? You fall, you know. It's different from pulling the trigger. So pulling the trigger, you normally don't do that by accident. You may do it out of anger. 
You know, if you do it out of anger, it's it's basin uh, You're angry. You're yeah. you hate yeah. Yeah. to to that point where you're willing to pull the trigger. So that's uh, premeditated, or we'll say intentional, more than premeditated. Premeditated sounds like a long period of time. Many murders that take place are not premeditated for a long time, but they happen when people get so angry and uh, they beat up on somebody and have no control. So I would put that with, with the next verse. It says, if anyone pushes someone maliciously or throws anything at him with deadly intent, and here is the word with sin'ah. So in this passage, it makes the difference with intent. And uh, in the other passage, a person by accident, bishgaga in verse 15. Okay? So then you have the intent that is there, or... Uh, now, verse 16. So, if a man strikes strike someone yeah. with an iron object so that he dies, yeah. he's a murderer, where does the intent come in? Well, the thing is, it doesn't use sin'ah with hatred, with intent, until verse uh, 20. But the thing is, if he's put to death, that's where the law, uh, he, it says he's put to death. And who's put to death? It's the, the one who is intentional. Uh, you know, it translates it manslayer. Anybody has a Hebrew uh, version? Okay, so what is the term for manslayer? Verse, verse 16. Verse 16. Yeah, murderer. Yeah, a murderer. So it's when it talks about murderer but killing... With intent, there are a lot of words for killing in the Bible. Actually, God is never a rotseach, a murderer, but God kills an awful lot of people. I know, I'm just wondering if someone carries a deadly object, whatever form it is, somewhere where it could, there could be a chance it could go up even accidentally. Yes. Right? Uh-huh. Would they be held? They go to a city of refuge. They run. Well, you said there was also a system of justice. Yes, there is a system of justice. And she read that back in, I think, yeah, in Exodus. Exodus. In Exodus, you have case laws. You call the Ten Commandments um, um, apodictic law, if you want. It's uh, Ten Commandments, do this, don't do that. That's unique to Israel, to the law of Israel. The rest of the law is called casuistic law, case law. And this is the exact same format as you find in other ancient Near Eastern. Uh, and if you move the boundary stone of your neighbor, this is what's going to happen. If the cow of your neighbor falls in your ditch and dies, you will pay this. So the cases, if this happens, it's, it's quite clear usually in the legal system. But we're not sure if all the legal system was actually applied. And uh, because you look at... Uh, um, uh, David should have been killed for murdering yeah. others, for committing adultery, mm-hmm. for, you know, so you think, is it just because it's David? But there are many things we see in Scripture that you think, okay, where's the application of the law? And you don't see it. And it's the same thing in Mesopotamia where you have the law code of Hammurabi was written in Akkadian on the wall of the palace and the entrance of the city. Well, most people couldn't read and so it's much more complicated to read Akkadian than it is to read uh, Hebrew. 
And, but the law was there, but also in studies that have been done is you see that the law is there uh, to give, to establish uh, a people as a nation, but not meaning that everything that is in the official law code is actually used in the system of justice. And so it's a status thing. Some things were used, they have to have uh, a legal system of some kind. So why don't we see everything applied from the law uh, Exodus 21 to 24 to every situation, you know. So uh, I'll let that one uh, just kind of hang there. Um, all right. So, so we have the um, uh, the cities of refuge provision in six different places for the man uh, slayer, and then uh, we go to the next chapter where we have finally the Levites. If you uh, go to chapter 13 of Joshua, well, let me just read a few scriptures. Don't go there because we don't have time. But in chapter 13, verse 14, it says, Only to the tribe of Levi he gave no inheritance. And then we continue reading in the same chapter. We have verse 33. But to the tribe of Levi, Moses gave no inheritance. Adonai, God of Israel, is their inheritance, as he has spoken to them. Then you go in the next chapter, chapter 14, in verse 3. For Moses had given the inheritance to the two tribes and a half across the Jordan, but he gave no inheritance to the Levites among them. Then you go in verse 4. For the children of Joseph became two tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim. They gave no portion to the Levites in the land, except towns to live in, with their pasture lands around them for their livestock and for their cattle. And so it's not just giving them a place to live, but they a place to really live, you know, to not just for the sacrificial system and not just for the, the religious uh, aspect of their work, but, uh, but to live there. And then we have that again in chapter 18, which is the end of the distribution of land in verse 7. But the Levites have no portion among, among you, for the priesthood of Adonai is their inheritance. And so several times we hear that the Levites are not given. And if you look at your map, there's no place where it says Levi. Okay? <coughs> because they were all over the place. I'm sorry? No, it doesn't say Joshua either. Oh, no, but Joshua was within Ephraim. Right. Yeah, because if I said Ephraim. Yeah, but it doesn't, there's no tribe. You know, no tribal. Uh, uh, territory given to them. So why? Because they're given 48 cities, including the six cities of refuge, and these 48 cities become the cities where people go to offer sacrifice. They couldn't come down to Jerusalem all the time, and so you have uh, places uh, to offer sacrifice. You know people sin on a regular basis? I don't know about you, but <laughs> And uh, so offering sin, offerings, and, you know, sacrifice, Thanksgiving offerings, it didn't only happen three times a year. It just happened on a regular basis. And um, so people always had a place not very far. And larger tribes gave more land. Smaller tribes gave less land. So in... Uh, uh, verse 21, uh, chapter 21 of Joshua, that's what is described here, the 48 cities that are given, which we read about in Numbers. We didn't read about it, but it was in the chapter we just looked at, and it's uh, described in Numbers chapter 35. And so they get uh, 48 cities, so now everybody's got land, or a place to stay. 
whether it's a town or whether it's a territory. So we get to the end, chapter uh, 21, verse 43. So here's another summary. So Adonai gave to Israel the entire land that he has sworn to give to their fathers. They took possession and settled in it. Then Adonai gave them rest on all sides, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one man of all their enemies withstood them, for Adonai gave all their enemies into their hand. Not one good thing that Adonai had promised to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. So, you know, they're in the land. They now know where they're settling. It takes a while to settle and to, uh, to establish roots in each one of these areas. And then verses, uh, chapters 22, 23, and 24 are really three farewell speeches of Joshua. The first one is uh, to the eastern tribes. And uh, he calls the men of the eastern tribes, uh, Reuben, uh, Gad, and half-tribe of Manasseh. And let's look at verse 1. Then Joshua summoned the Reubenites, Gadites, half-tribe of Manasseh, and said to them, You have kept all that Moses, the servant of Adonai, commanded you and have listened to my voice in all that I commanded you. You have not abandoned your kinsmen these many days <coughs> to this day, but have kept the charge of the commandment of Adonai your God. So now Adonai your God has given rest to your kinsmen, as he said to them. So now turn and go to your tents to the land that is your possession, which Moses, the servant of Adonai, gave you beyond the Jordan. Only be very careful and observe and follow God. And which is a theme that appears in the three farewell speeches. Make sure that you remember to follow Adonai. That you don't uh, compromise. That you don't get swayed. And so those three... Um, so here uh, they say, okay, thank you very much. Uh, you know, uh, it's done. We're going home. So off they go to the Jordan. They get to the Jordan. And they build this huge altar. And uh, actually, in your PowerPoint, there's kind of a, uh, yeah, on page uh, three. And in 2003, they found this massive uh, pile of rocks underwater in the southern end of the Sea of Galilee. And it's when they were doing a survey, an aerial survey, that they saw this formation you can go online, you can see pictures that are much better than this picture. And you can actually see the picture of what you see from the top. And uh, they discovered this pile of stones. They have no idea what it's for, but it's massive. And it's on a uh, hewn stone. It's uh, natural stones, not cut, not uh, a structured, uh, uh, but it's huge pile of stone. And the first thing that came to mind when I read this is... That was the whole issue of Joshua chapter 22. The western tribes, you know, said goodbye to the eastern tribes. Eastern tribes left. They built this massive altar. And the western tribes immediately said, Aha! They're turning to other gods. They're building uh, altars to other gods. There's misunderstanding. And immediately they said, We need to go to war with them. And, uh, you know. And so the chapter is very interesting because it's really misunderstanding, miscommunication, um, jumping to conclusions, assuming you know what's going on when you don't, and uh, all these things. So in my course in um, at Denver Seminary this semester, the final exam is students will act this chapter out in Hebrew. 
And so they've all been given a part to play. They have to memorize their portion. Uh, we have Reubenites, Gadites, Manassites, uh, Finhas, uh, Eliezer, Joshua, number one, two, three, the narrators. And, uh, and we have three teams. One team is the, uh, the production team. And we have a director of production. One of my students did her undergraduate degree in theater. Hallelujah. <laughs> so I put her as the, uh, the director of production. And then I have a team, uh, team on costumes, and then I have a team on uh, staging and advertising. So by the end of the semester, for the next 15 weeks, we're going to be working on this chapter. I have to write a, a, a paper on this chapter also, understanding what are the issues. Why did they want to kill their brother? Misunderstanding how quickly uh, there are problems and how did they resolve all this. So I really look forward to what they're going to come up with. I've never done this in my life, so uh, it's, uh, I hope it works. <laughs> but I was so surprised. I asked, uh, I kind of did a quiz on the syllabus. And uh, one thing that I asked the students, they went online and took this. You know, I don't like to go through syllabus in class, so I gave them a quiz. And uh, say by you know the end of the first week you have to go and take this quiz five easy points open the syllabus read it answer every question you know when do you have to submit this true or false Dr. Belair wants that you know and uh, and uh, one question I put is true or false I'm terrified of having to be part of a play in Hebrew and. Uh, uh, <laughs> True or false, Dr. Dallaire will be there till the end to help us and give us confidence. <laughs> <laughs> and also, I thought at least, you know, and, and the majority wrote that they were excited about the play. They couldn't wait to get working on the play. So I was surprised, really, but uh, pleasantly surprised. And so here we get to the end of Joshua, and there's the resolution. They're in the land. And when you read the book of Judges, that comes right after uh, there are portions of the end of Joshua that are repeated word for word in the first chapter of Judges, which is they're in the land, but not following the leadership of God. They said, yes, whatever you say we will do, and we know that that falls apart very quickly. And so uh, God raises up Judges, and uh, it, uh, it turns, uh, uh, you know, not very sweet. So... So, okay, so what about the book of Joshua? So why is it important for us to study the book of Joshua? Right? It's about God. Yeah. Or is it important? Why? It's about the history. It's because it's history. Yeah, it's part of the history of Israel. What are some other lessons that we learned from the book of Joshua? Other well, things? I learned about uh, why there's so much animosity toward Israel today. You know, this, this is a, a philosophy that's been going on throughout the history of mankind. Yeah, and some in in the history, in church history, the book of Joshua has been taken literally and applied and done great damage and uh, killing a lot of innocent people and even, you know, the Puritans coming to America. So the book of Joshua has been misunderstood and, uh, but it, it shows you what happens when you put, you know, uh, us and them together. And it's supposed to be to rub shoulders, supposed to be a good thing. 
And uh, but the point, what I what I like to think about with Joshua is God said to Abram, "What I want to do is to bless all the nations of the world through you." So the purpose for Israel going in the land was to bless the world. It was not for a genocide. It was not to to kill and to all of a sudden take over which is very much part of the conflict uh, in the land today, you know. They came and they, they took our stuff and, you know, so many things that uh, uh, use the same language. Um, so we need to understand that God will bless, wants to bless everybody who's in the land. Who is in the land at the end of Joshua? Israel, Canaanites, Hittites, Jebusites, Perizzites, Amorites, multitudes that came out of Egypt. All the ites. All the ites, you know. So they're there. So when we read that they all died, they really didn't all die. If we understand that the language that is used belongs to that kind of of summary of campaign report. And so God had a plan to bless all the people of the nation, whether Israel is in the land or outside of the land. I get confused when I read that Saul's kingdom was taken away from him because what was that bleeding of sheep I hear? And yet, sounds like that he was using in some cases the same kind of language that was used later on when they said they killed them all but they didn't I'd have to I'd have to look at that passage and to see what is it a summary of a campaign report or why is it that the kingdom is taken away from him does it have to do with war does it have to do with sin uh, you know, what is highlighted? Is it the same language as what I have? It's obedience. He was commanded to specifically do. Yeah, but th- that's what I'm saying. Is it campaign report language? Yeah. Okay, that's what I'm saying. There's a distinction uh, between Israel lost its land. You know, I mean, the prophet says you need to turn to God. Northern Kingdom didn't. God raised a prophet after prophet after prophet. They lost their land. Of course, they they got it back because God promised they would bring them back. But uh, there are consequences. Losing your kingdom, losing your land, losing all this doesn't mean that the purposes of God are not the same. Okay? And that that they will not be fulfilled. I still have five minutes? (laughs) That was Haram Haram also, but the point being, like you said, it's... It doesn't matter if it means different things. It can mean different things specifically because it is the same word there. So I think what Dr. Galea was saying in previous weeks too is not so much that, that this is what Haram means, but the fact is it is devoted to God. It can mean all and really mean all. Like I think in that case it does. I think that's what you'd find when you look in, in, in Samuel. And in other cases it's clearly not, but it's devoted to the Lord. So. We try to put everything in a nice box. This word means this at this time at all times. That's the kind of arguments you read about in, in the commentaries and so forth, and people try to make big cases about that. It's just not you know, we use English that way sometimes when you, you know would you ever do that again? You know, whatever the point is, you know, that kind of stuff. So thank you so much for the extra week of the And uh, you know, really this is this was a big task to try to even get this done in 
six weeks, eight weeks, I mean, we spend 15 weeks at seminary, three hours a week going through the book of Joshua, any of the books, the Joshua class that I sat in with Dr. Delaire. So I was very thankful we were able to get, uh, get as much as we did and probably take some time for things to soak in. Uh, all of these, um, these sessions, other than the very first week, are on uh, our website as well, audio that you can download. Uh, only twelve dollars a download. Not I get half of that. That's right. It is free download, so you can you can reference those there. And of course, we're blessed to have Doctor Valera for questions. If you have questions about things later, so thanks for sticking around a little longer. We wanted to be gracious on this last this last evening. So, well, let's let's close in prayer. Uh, Lord, thank you so much for this this time and these many weeks we've had, Lord, and we just. Uh, just pray that you continue to, to knit our, this kind of our congregation together, that we can delve more, deeper into your word, Lord, and as we look into these next several weeks of, of prayer, we pray that you would just fill this place with your presence, that we would all continue to come here for everything that you have for us. We just pray for safety as we go home tonight. Thank you for all these things. In Yeshua's name, amen. amen.